staying with Sir Philip and young Ben. No wonder you caught a cold. <laughs> Shame on you, Sybil. Which is it to be? The old man or the young boy? <gasps> Silly question, I suppose. I know which one I'd choose. <laughs> no, 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 don't you go. Stay exactly where you are. I haven't finished with you. Not remotely. I want to know. Did he make a pass at you, or did you make a pass at him? Hello and welcome to the Lone Acting Nominees Podcast, a show where I'm joined each week by a guest to discuss a movie that only received one Oscar nomination, that being for one of its performances. We'll talk about the performance in question, the movie as a whole, and its place in the Oscar race, among other things. I'm Gordon McNulty, and this week I'm joined once again by Zena Short to discuss Annette Bening's Oscar-nominated performance in the 2004 film Being Julia. Zita, good to have you back on the show. Oh, thank you for inviting me back on. I think this is going to be ooh, a lot more of a, you could say, substantial discussion than the last time we spoke, because I assume that we are not going to gush about this film as much as we did about Georgia. Yeah, yeah. I didn't, I didn't hate this one. Kind, I mean, it kind of lives up to the reputation of being a very forgettable movie, I guess. Um, but there's there's some good there's some some nuggets of gold to be found here and there throughout. And uh, uh, I don't know. I'm not going to be shitting on this one either. And I was going to say as much as I did with Nell, but I also didn't hate Nell. So I don't know. Maybe I'm just in a giving mood lately. Uh, but yeah, there's either you are correct. There's going to be a lot to say about this one there's there's a lot of stuff going on here it doesn't always work yes oh my god it wants to be all about eve but also decides not to be all about eve halfway through and puts a whole lot of other things on its plate and it can't quite balance everything that's going on I would say halfway through is being generous because it takes a while. I just think it, it takes a while to even get into the actual all about Eve style yes. plot. Like it takes that's like about an hour into the movie when Lucy Punch becomes a a, a factor in the plot. It feels mm. like I don't know. Uh, but yeah, there's we'll talk about what this movie wants to be and whether or not it knows what it wants to be, because uh, I don't I don't know if I know if the movie knows what it wants to be. Uh, but we are talking about Being Julia from 2004, directed by Istvan Zabo, written by uh, Ronald Harwood, based on the novel Theater by W. Somerset Maugham, starring Annette Benning, Jeremy Irons, Sean Evans, Lucy Punch, Juliet Stevenson, Miriam Margulies, Tom Sturridge, Bruce Greenwood, uh, Rosemary Harris, Rita Tushingham, and Michael Gambon as a ghostly theater director. Uh, Spectre. He gets cast as ghosts a lot. Is that is that am I am I correct in saying that? Is that just a, a thing that I feel like is true but isn't? I feel like Michael Gambon plays a lot of ghosts. Mm. I have no evidence to back that up, but it feels right. He, yes. he feels like he plays a lot of I, I I genuinely don't know where I'm getting that from, but uh I feel like there's a nugget of truth there. Anyway, it premiered September 3rd at the Telluride Film Festival. It played TIFF, played a bunch of different festivals, opened limited in the United States on October 15th of 2004, and then didn't open wide until February of 2005. So this is a very late, this is like sort of quintessential 
movie that nobody's ever seen movie that doesn't exist movie that is only i mean it it only exists to serve annette benning but it also only the only lasting moment of of i don't know, impact that it's had culturally is this nomination like truly does anyone ever talk about this movie outside of this very specific context no, absolutely not. And especially not in the context of the career of its director, who you would yeah. never think would make the pivot to making a Stephen Frears type vehicle for an older actress when he's the guy who made Mephisto and Confidence early on in his career. Yeah. And then like even his, I don't know if it was his first uh, English language film, but Sunshine is... It's still very politically minded, very, very uh, heavy in its themes. I don't know if you've seen that one, but it's an intense movie. And for- I, I will not tolerate the meeting Venus erasure. And as someone who did an entire course at university on the career of Glenn Close, how oh, could yeah. I, that was one that we uh, skipped over in her filmography, I, I guess. Um, although I did watch Sunshine in a, a class at, at school. Uh, it was like a Eastern European political filmmaking of the, 20, uh, the 20th century or something. like. I don't remember the exact title of the, of the course, but it was something like that where we watched a, a bunch of movies over the course of the semester and some of them were movies you've actually heard of like that or uh, Goodbye Lenin. And some of them were movies that I have only heard of in the context of that class and don't appear to have any sort of Western uh, uh, staying power. So I don't know. It was an interesting class. Uh, there was one, it was called like The Bridgeman. It was this like three hour biopic about a, a Hungarian uh, I think Hungarian. The the professor was Hungarian, I think. Um, but the 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 guy built this bridge that was like a big moment in. I I truly remember very little about this uh, this film, but that was the one that I that stood out as a movie that I have only ever heard of or heard reference to in the context of this one class that I took. Uh, hmm. Fascinating. Yeah, I, 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 I can look it up to see if hey, we'll take a tangent this early in the episode. The Bridgeman. Uh, yeah, from it's a TV movie from two thousand one. Uh, it has a. Uh, it doesn't even have a. Does it? Ha- it doesn't appear to even have a Rotten Tomatoes page, which doesn't sp- doesn't bode well. Uh. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm. We're not going to get too deep into this tangent, but all that being no. said, uh, Istvan S- S- uh, Sabo, I think it's. I so I actually did look up how to pronounce his name this time. I had assumed that the S Z was going to be a sh sound, but it's not. It's the it's the other S in his name. It's Istvan Sabo, uh, which is going to trip me up when I keep saying it because I'm, my tendency is going to go the other way. Uh, but he's an interesting filmmaker, and I do want to talk more about him later because um, I we also did watch Mephisto in that class so uh, uh, we had, had a couple different 
ex- exposures to him and his filmmaking. Uh, but before we talk about any of that, let's talk about our very American star in this very British role, Annette Benning. Uh, <laughs> What, where, what do you think about this performance, just like off the bat? Uh, it's a fascinating piece of casting, as you point out, where you can definitely see maybe a slightly younger Maggie Smith taking on this role, for example, and it would seem like perfect typecasting. Whereas Annette Burning, she definitely has that diva attitude. Her stature in Hollywood is that of royalty, essentially. She marries Warren Beatty. And they commented on this on the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast. That definitely seems to have been a fork in the road in her career, in that suddenly, instead of just being this bright, talented young star, She becomes this classy actress in finger quotes. And I think there's this sense that, oh, well, now that she's Mrs. Beatty, we have to give her these parts that I would say a slightly older grand dame would usually receive. And so this seems to be in line with that train of thought. And it never quite feels like she overcomes the fact that she is... American, as you point out, where it's always, it's not that the English accent is bad, it's very good. Clearly, she spent a lot of time on it. She gets the right sort of theatrical, lovey, overly dramatic in everyday life tone. And yet you can't help but think, oh yes, some British stage actress like Leslie Manville would be a more predictable casting choice and yes it would be more fitting and I think with Benning there are always these hoops that she has to jump through in every scenario just to get the audience to a point where they're not distracted by the fact that we are watching the woman who was recently in American Beauty as the ultimate American, not housewife, real estate agent, but suburban mother. And then all of a sudden, oh, I managed to believe that she's this posh stage actress. It never quite jibes. And at the same time, there are points where she does get to show off her flair for comedy. She is entertaining. Even if you can't say that she's entirely convincing, even if I thought that there were better choices for the part, there are definitely times where you think, oh, she's keying into something here that other actresses might not have leaned into. And if the performance has any enduring appeal, it is that it's vaguely campy and ludicrous. Yeah. Yeah, I I agree with all the points they're making there. It can be kind of difficult to uh, to remove all of our preconceived notions about Annette Bening at this point in her career. And just sometimes it's just like she's a very quintessentially American actress. She has just all of that sort of baggage to her career as it stands at this point. And so to have to fully remove this because she's, like, it's, it's one thing for her to just be playing a British character, but to be playing specifically an actress and to see 
her character acting and there's like however many levels removed of the character she's putting on at some points it can just be like oh that that's just Annette Benning playing a British woman playing a character on stage and so it can just be a, a bit hard to to remove uh that from our our, our uh, conception of her but I think she's not bad. I think she's actually pretty good in this movie overall. I think uh, there is a lot of levity. There's a lot of heart. There is certainly some points where she goes very much over the top. And you have to respect that at a certain point. Like there are over the top performances, even in this movie that aren't all that great, I would say. But uh, I think Benning is the right level of understanding the the humor and the drama of this character in this story and uh, without selling it too far to one side or the other. Yes, I would tend to agree. And I can definitely imagine another actress who's, I guess saying heavy-handed is an odd way to put it because this is by no means a subtle performance. Not at all. She's definitely... (laughs) (laughs) turning it up to 11 wherever she can but as you point out I do think that there is a relatively effective modulation of these two seemingly conflicting tones that she has to lean into at different points and one of the big themes of the film seems to be the fact that oh this actress she's always acting even in her personal life and this there's this sense that she can't really process real human emotions and needs to have this filter of putting on a performance in order to experience these moments of emotional catharsis in real life and clearly that leaves her family members feeling as though she doesn't really care about their problems because she's so desperate to remain insulated from the real pain that she could experience in her day-to-day life and I think that Benning really has fun with that and keeps you guessing at times as to whether this woman is expressing genuine tender affection for her son or whether it's just another excuse to put on a mask and play the loving doting mother yeah and that just sort of like bleeds into her relationships with everyone with with tom and with Jeremy Irons and even when it does get into the sort of all about Eve style plot and she is all of a sudden very enthusiastically pro Lucy Punch and it like the the movie it sort of like I, I have written down in my notes what's the long game here why is she suddenly wanting this girl to get this role and then eventually it's so that she can upstage her and call out the whole sort of affair thing on stage but also like she doesn't learn about that until far after she's been cast and they've gotten into rehearsals and everything i the, the last act of this movie is a mess uh it's a good mess uh, by the end i think the sort of reveal of it all when it's actually performed on stage and she gets to have that moment i think that's a fun catharsis to everything that's been going on so far 
but it doesn't really track with anything just like plot wise like it 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 just doesn't make sense i feel like at all when when you really think about what's supposed to be going on here i don't know uh how how do you feel about the last act of this of this story well i concur with you in thinking that it's way too messy and as you point out you have this incredibly lengthy first act you could call it but it sort of feels like nothing's happening yeah but she's just fucking this young american guy yes. for like 40 minutes and everything's good and there's no just, drama to it at all yes you get introduced to all of these colorful characters and you think oh this is relatively entertaining i enjoy being around these people, sort of, but there needs to be some conflict in place. You should be setting up some sort of plot line, even if it's only a vague through line that exists to stitch together various comedic set pieces. They don't really do that for a long time. And then it almost feels like the screenwriter got nervous. And so halfway through the second act just <laughs> decided to start throwing everything at the wall. And so we get a whole lot of unresolved plot lines, ultimately, yeah. that he throws into the mix. And you end up with this conclusion that doesn't entirely work because you think, sorry, this conflict only sprung up in the last 20 minutes. I'm not emotionally invested in this yet and there are a couple of two lines that I do think end up working out and you really do feel this sense of comfort at the end of the film the fact that the relationship between Irons and Benning ultimately they learn to become closer at the end of this movie and you have the sense of them accepting the fact that their relationship dynamic will always be dysfunctional and odd. At the same time, ooh, some of these other plot lines, the fact that she's desperate to have an affair with Bruce Greenwood, and then he says, ha ha, I'm gay, and then she laughs it off. I And that's it. That's the end of Bruce Greenwood <laughs> having anything to do in this movie. What was happening there? What was the point? <laughs> I don't know. I genuinely, like, there's so much that is introduced just, and then just left. Like, Miriam Margulies has the one scene at the beginning where, oh, isn't it funny that she's a lesbian that's trying to peek at Annette Bening when she's naked, and then that's really the end of Miriam Margulies having anything to do. She keeps showing up. She's kind of the one that spills to Jeremy Irons that Annette Benning is having this affair with uh, Tom. But she doesn't really have all that much to actually do in this movie besides sometimes make a funny face and be lesbian. And that's that's all she is in this movie as well. And it, it's just like, there's too many people in this cast that have nothing to do. There's really only four characters, five maybe, that like have an actual bearing on the plot if if you can call this movie a movie that has a plot. Uh, and even then, like, it's really only three. And even then, it's really only two. Because Jeremy Irons doesn't do a whole lot here either. I don't know. It feels like it's, for a movie that 
is so much just the sort of the Annette Benning show. There's too many people in the supporting cast that are left completely just empty handed. Yes, I think it's one of those saddening reminders that structure is so important in this sort of comedy. And I always feel as though that's sort of a disappointment because you always think, oh, but the best parts of a lot of these comedies are the moments where they just become these madcap extravaganzas where they throw, they become anarchic. They throw all of the rules and conventions out the window and they really let loose. But in this movie, you can't just have all of this, what would be entertaining filler in a better movie. You can't make an entire movie out of that stuff. There needs to be something holding all of this together. There needs to be some guiding principle. And there's none of that here. And unfortunately, it does end up letting down the film. And as you point out, in a lot of great ensemble comedies, something like Dinner at Eight, which is sort of the, the blueprint for that sort of thing in Hollywood, most of the characters get an equal amount of screen time. None of them are that well developed as characters, but you know enough for the climax to have some impact where you think, oh God, will John Barrymore die of alcoholism? Will Jean Harlow end up swindling her husband out of his money? And it's enough to go on for you to be able to follow along with that plot. In Being Julia, it shouldn't have a complicated plot that is difficult to follow. <laughs> but with every scene, it almost feels as though each scene could have come from a different movie. There's not much connective tissue between them. And then you also wonder, wait, is this one of the important scenes that sets up something that's going to be important later? Or is it just a throwaway fluffy moment that I don't have to be paying that much attention to? Perhaps this is just me revealing that I'm a terrible film watcher who tunes out far too often. But No, this is not a movie that uh, especially holds your attention all that well. This is, a, a, like you said, it's a meandering movie that doesn't do a good job of, of telling you what are the important parts. And what are the parts that are filler, for lack of a better word? The closest you can really say to this movie having a through line of a plot is the affair that she's having with this young American guy that I kind of assumed for the first half of the movie would be the the, the thrust of the plot and would be like what the movie's about. And then halfway through, it's just not anymore. And it it betrays the movie and it betrays Julia and Annette Benning specifically because everything that it's been building towards for the past like 45 50 minutes is just gone and now we are and w without that it kind of leaves the audience to realize we don't know all that much about this woman and we don't have much of an emotional connection to her I feel like and it it just sort of I don't know. That That's it. It's just, okay, well, now it's going to be a little bit of All About Eve, kind of. And Tom's still there, but he's not really doing much. And that plot's gone. Let's do a new plot. 
and I don't know. It just, it's a messy movie. And it, it's a shame because I think Annette Benning is pretty good here. And we should talk more about the performance because we haven't said all that much about her specifically. But I think she's, she's funny. She has some good moments of humor. She has some good moments of drama. Some of them are very over the top. There's, there's a scene where she's had a fight with Tom because he went out with her son uh, at this like vacation they're all on together or something. And he gets back and they have a big fight and she goes back into her room and starts crying and ghost Michael Gambon shows up again and says, oh, you're going over the top. I've always given you these notes about uh, how you're an unrealistic crier when you cry on stage because he's like the ghost or memory of her old theater director that's dead. It's never really explained what he's doing there. I don't entirely get that part of the movie, Uh, but it felt almost like that was Michael Gambon critiquing Annette Benning specifically because the crying is so big and so just like over over dramatic over over emphasized I guess in a way that makes you sort of look back and think am I really all that invested in this relationship am I invested in anything in this movie I don't know I had a kind of not a crisis, but halfway through this movie, I, I really had to stop and pause and think, am I interested in this story at all? And I'm kind of just not. Yes, I'm not either. I struggled to remain invested and I'm sorry, I'm going on another tangent here. Go for it, it reminded me, and I've never even seen this film, but are you aware of the Michelle Pfeiffer vehicle, Sherry? In title only. Yes. So from the late 2000s, the poster is just hard looking, sort of sexy and mischievous. And I believe that the plot is that she is a middle-aged former prostitute and her best friend says, hey you need to train my son in the art of seduction. And so she has a brief affair with a younger man and then he breaks her heart and later commits suicide oh boy. because of it. So it's very odd. It's a Stephen Frears film, of course, the person who <laughs> makes this sort of film constantly. And I kept expecting being Julia to be something more like that but Tom is set up as this deeply unlikable, pathetic character who I don't even know if you're meant to hate him. I don't it's think the thing. It's he's that. so he's so poorly characterized in that some <laughs> points he's uh, kind of a good partner for her. They get along together and then he's a, a, a weaselly little bitch and then he's just nothing by the end of the movie and he uh, she calls him out from the stage and there's a cut to him and he just doesn't seem to react at all because at this point the movie doesn't know how he would react because it doesn't really try to understand his character. No. It's 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 so... All of the romantic scenes between the two of them, it's jarring cutting back and forth between Annette Benning, who is completely selling this sort of flirtation, this sort of she's she's found herself again and she's happy and she's in love with this boy and 
she's giggly and all this stuff and then it cuts back to him giving us absolutely nothing and it's that she's able to salvage any sort of anything from those scenes is again more power to Annette Bening for for saving the parts of this movie that are otherwise unsavable. I'm maybe now that I'm talking about this movie, I'm maybe a lot more down on it than I realized. <laughs> no, I think the thing is it's so light and frothy that it's very difficult to get mad at it. If it had more pretensions, if it presented itself as this great important piece of art I think it would be very easy to get irritated at it but because it was clearly made as a throwaway piece of entertainment that 65 year olds are meant to enjoy at the shopping mall and they can maybe bring along some wine and the movie theatre attendant will pretend that they don't notice I don't think that you end up thinking oh I'm insulted by how poorly written this is. If this were the King's Speech, for example, it's very easy to get annoyed by that movie because it presents itself as a masterpiece and all of its deficiencies become very obvious within a couple of minutes. And being Julia is just sort of inoffensive. Sorry, that's the point I wanted to make and I took a whole minute to make oh, it. Th- I mean, it's a great point to be making is that, yeah, I, I, I mean, you did say it perfectly. Like this movie, there's not enough here to be mad at. Like it's not substantial enough to be offensive or derided. It's just sort of forgettably passable, I guess, which is, kind of the most damning criticism you can give a movie like this is forgettably passable. Uh, I really don't have all that much more to say specifically about Annette Benning, though. There's a point uh, early on in my notes I wrote, uh, this, this is not a bad British accent, and then a couple minutes later I came back to it and put a question mark. Because, I don't know, is it a good accent? Is it? I think it's pretty solid. I think I... she has a decent command over it throughout the pit. I don't know. Again, I don't know how I feel about it. I don't, it doesn't really anger me. It's not an especially bad accent, but it's also not something that I'm going to go, you know, <laughs> shouting from the rooftops about how great Annette Benning's British accent is. It's just sort of there. I don't know. And I, I really don't, yeah. It is one of the main points of criticism because you have to assume that that is one of the things that awards voters sort of gave her points for back in 2004. And accents, frustratingly, still seem to play a big role in people getting awards nominations, which I think is frankly ridiculous. I understand that it can be difficult to adopt one, but I honestly think that it's sort of insulting to an actress like, say, Meryl Streep to claim that the most impressive part of a lot of those great performances that she's given is that, oh, wow, she was able to pick up an Italian dialect. I think there's so much more going on in those performances. And it's just funny to me that people focus on this superficial 
aspect of these performances at the end of the day above all else. And at the same time, this performance is so weightless that you do end up fixating on something like that because what else are you going to talk about? Yes, she's relatively funny. She seems to, more than anyone else in the film, understand the tone that it's aiming for. So she deserves praise for that. But it's not as though, I feel as though she fully understands Julia. And I feel like a lot of that is the script, which does not know what to do with her. But at the same time, as with the rest of the film, it does feel like a bit of a schizophrenic performance. And I don't say that in a positive way, but it reflects the fact that the character doesn't know who she is and is searching for this identity. No, it feels as though Annette Benning from scene to scene is having to switch it up because there's no way to consistently play the same character in every single scene based on what the script is asking of her. Yeah, it even struggles to do that within the same scene sometimes. Like the first time that Bruce Greenwood breaks up with her over dinner and she has this, you know, it's it's not a bad dramatic scene from her where she's crying, but also trying not to put on a scene because she's this high society figure out in society and doesn't want to be seen uh, as fragile or weak or whatever. And then within that same scene there's this other woman who recognizes her from an recognizes her from another table and is like oh i don't like that julia she's low class like i was and she deserves to be punished for that fact and she goes over and tries to say something snarky to her like oh wasn't your father a doctor back in jersey and right away julia just switches it right up and is like oh no he was a veterinarian he delivered all the bitches in your house And then the scene just ends and it goes from this ultimately not terrible dramatic scene where she has a control, a a much more subtle control over the dramatics than she has even at other points in this movie. And then they just sort of change it into the sort of light comic parts that the movie has at other points. And then they just move on and... The movie doesn't know what it wants to be. The movie doesn't even know if it wants to be a comedy or a drama at all. And I think Benning is the only person that plays both sides of that to any sort of effect. But even she struggles at some points because the movie is just going back and forth too quickly to to keep up the pace with it, even as the lead. Yes. And I did think it's interesting comparing it to something like All About Eve, which I think everyone would agree is more successful in telling this sort of story. In that movie, I feel as though you're always kept at a distance from Margot. Absolutely, yeah. always seeing her through the eyes of another character. And there are one or two moments where I feel as though we adopt her perspective and we are allowed to get close to her. But I think that the movie uses that character so well because she does have this mystique and this allure and she is this person who's constantly performing. And so it's a great case of form matching function in that this character who's never really a real person around her close friends and family members, we never get to see the real her we're only seeing her performing 
this movie is almost entirely from Julia's perspective. Yeah. And that's a disastrous miscalculation. And you constantly find yourself thinking, okay, but wouldn't this story be more interesting if it were from the perspective of Jeremy Irons, where it would be more of a tragedy, or even Tom, even though he's a very poorly written character, this young social climber who wants to use this older woman in order to advance his own career. Yeah. Yeah, it's a... uh... It's a messy script, and Benning does her best with it, but I think you're right that the movie's ultimate failure is, it feels bad to say this, but too much Annette Benning, And just, there, no one else is given the chance to become a character at all. And like in All About Eve, there's a good four or five other characters that are full fleshed out characters that interact with one another and have an understandable uh, driving force as to what they want and how they plan on getting it over the course of that movie. And in this movie, it seems like everyone's motivation changes scene to scene based on what would be a good scene to have next. (laughs) Yes. And it also feels like what should be an important element of the script, the class conflict that exists between all of the characters is really muted and played down here. And I thought, sorry, this is a British costume drama. How are you not going to address class? That is the most significant theme in almost every great British piece of art. And we're just going to sideline it in favor of these uninteresting themes it was so frustrating to me and from what I understand in the novel that it's based on that is a very important aspect of the plot I would believe that you would need to completely alter the script or the story in order to make it a bigger feature it would naturally tie into Julia's insecurities about being her real self but no we only get vague references to it. No, the only way that this, the thing that they added, decided to add from the book that's not in the book at all to address that aspect of, of Julia's psyche is the ghost Michael Gambon. That's not, that's not in the book at all. That's just a thing they decided to put in this movie. I don't know why. Uh, is there anything else we want to say about Benning's performance? I think she's good in the last sequence where there's this play that she's in that Lucy Punch is now a part of and she doesn't like Lucy Punch for XYZ reasons of all the men that she's sleeping with that are also in uh, some part of Benning's life and so she goes to great lengths to make the show uh, in rehearsals go very well go up to this very specific way like oh I'm gonna uh, we're gonna stage this whole scene where I'm sitting on the very end with my back to the audience and Lucy Punch delivers this whole monologue or this whole scene right to the audience and it's going to be a big focus on her. And then opening night, she just changes everything and turns the whole scene into a, hey, fuck you, Lucy Punch. Fuck you, the men in my life that are fucking Lucy Punch. I'm still a great actress and you can all suck it. Uh, and that's that's just the end of the movie. 
And it's really weirdly done, especially with the way it's handled immediately afterwards, where Jeremy Irons is immediately let, let off the hook for everything. And it's the the movie is especially mean to Lucy Punch as well, who has a character name. I'm prime. Avis Crichton. Oh, yeah. I don't know how I forgot that. That's actually a, a pretty wild name. Uh, but the movie is very much on this. It seems to be on the side of, no, she's she's wrong for wanting to be an actress. And Jeremy Irons is totally fine. And let's just live happily ever after. And I don't know what it's trying to say with that. But regardless of all that, I think Benning is good and fun in that sequence. Uh, she does a good job of making that seem like it's, it's things that she's been mulling over in her head for the past few months and is now just saying to her in front of everyone under the guise of this uh, farcical play that they're in. But yeah, what, what do you think of that sequence? So again, it reminded me of another movie. This is another problem with the film. You keep thinking of better films yeah. that it seems to have taken inspiration from. But have you seen, and I can't pronounce it correctly, Les Dames du Bois de Boulogne? I it's don't Robert think so. Rissom. I guess not, no. Okay, so that's sort of similar to All About Eve in that it has a plot about a high-status woman trying to fuck the man she loves over. And so she's this high-class lady, the main character, who has carried on a long-term affair with this... He's a Viscount or a Marquess or something. And then they decide to break off the relationship when he determines that she's too old. And this naturally upsets her. She pretends that she's still friendly with him and then plots his downfall by getting him to date a former prostitute whom he believes to be a, not a nun, a girl who has grown up in a convent. Huh. And ultimately it has this very dark ending because instead of managing to get revenge, the main character essentially loses everything and is shunned by society while her former lover is reaccepted into society and has a relatively happy marriage with this prostitute. So being Julia could have gone for that sort of ending where it's kind of dark and muted and Julia's big comeback isn't as thrilling as she expected it to be, but no, we don't get any of that. And ultimately, Jeremy Irons' character might be the most layered figure in the entire piece, where some of his melancholy and his sadness and his wistfulness for the past did register with me. And I think he's giving a pretty solid performance in a role that isn't quite as juicy as some of the other parts that he was being given around this time. But still, it does seem like their marriage is one of the most fascinating aspects of the film and they don't fully exploit that. Yeah, this is a move, like they're basically an open couple that have been having affairs on each other's or behind each other's back openly for years and they're fine with it. Uh, and it's just a matter of like 
well, he's my manager. He's my accountant. He's he is he a director as well, or is he just a former actor that does the money now? Does he have a, a defined role? I I I truly don't know. Um, but they're just like, yeah, we're gonna fuck other people. So what? Whatever. We're still happy with each other. Uh, and it was nice to see a movie where Jeremy Irons is in a complicated relationship where he's not just like the biggest bastard you've ever seen because he's done yes. that all he i mean he he okay what what do you think comes first is it jeremy irons gets given a script because it has a sort of complicated uh potentially uh cuckolding or just sort of general cheating or openness or whatever relationship at its center or does jeremy irons get given a script and then beg the writers to change it so that that can be a part of his character because he seems to do that a lot he gets a lot of a lot of uh unconventional relationship roles and it's similar to his real life relationship oh yeah a a long-term open marriage and i went to his wife's wikipedia page and her personal life section is lengthy and (laughs) it's a lot of she was maintaining an affair with so and so but then had to break it off because her son didn't like her lover that sort of weird stuff so clearly maybe there's something in real life that he can draw on when he wants to play these parts. But it is true that from the very beginning, he has played this sort of role, even in something like the French Lieutenant Woman, where he's being messed around with by Meryl Streep's character for the entire film. Clearly, he loves to play these roles, and he is very good at it. Yeah, Yeah. I mean... He wins his Oscar for Reversal of Fortune, which is a movie about a man that may or may not have killed his wife. Uh, Dead Ringers is all about how there's two Jeremy Irons and they both just love having sex with women. And sometimes it's the same woman. Just like his whole career is based on Jeremy Irons has a weird relationship to relationships. Mm. I don't know. Um, We've kind of, we've gone far afield. We've gotten very well deep into the rest of the movie conversation but is there anything else we want to say about Annette Bening or do we want to just open the floodgates and talk about everything else let's open the floodgates sorry Annette yeah she's good it's a good performance there's not a lot to say about it it's just it's fine it's not bad it's not anything like it's not a revelation of a performance she's certainly been better in a lot of other things but it's not bad Uh, but yeah okay rest of the movie I did the usual things. I saw the sights, worked hard at my Italian. I went to the opera a good deal. Have you made up your mind what you're going to do yet? I want to stop living in an atmosphere of make-believe. That's your world, not mine, and it stifles me. What do you mean? Once when I was a kid, I was standing in the wings watching you on stage. It must have been a pretty moving scene because I couldn't stop blubbing. You moved to the side of the stage near where I was standing, and you turned your back on the audience, and you said, in your ordinary voice, what the bloody hell the electrician thought he was doing with the bright lights. <laughs> and in the same breath, with a great cry of anguish, just went on with the scene. Where do we want to start? We can keep talking about Jeremy Irons. He's good in this. 
It's a good performance from him. That's, again, kind of all I have to say. There's not really a whole lot going on. Well, it is notable. And I think this honestly happens with a lot of these British productions where it's almost like there are too many good actors in Britain. And these movies are just overflowing with these incredibly talented character actors. And it feels like they end up in the movie, but the screenwriter sort of doesn't know what to do with them. So you just get some random non sequitur scene in which they get to scream and cry and yell and show off their abilities, but it hasn't been properly integrated into the film itself. So yeah. maybe, maybe that's my point. And this sounds ridiculous. Britain need to get better screenwriters so that you can finally put these great actors to proper use. Yeah, let's look at this uh, this screenwriter's filmography. Oh, he's been writing movies since like the 60s. Uh, and the first one on here that's like a title I recognize is... I Oh, he wrote The Pianist. The Pianist. Huh. Uh, he okay, so it's like a bunch of stuff I have not heard of. Oh, he did write The Dresser. Okay, I didn't see that on there, but he wrote The Dresser. Uh, Cry the Beloved Country is a title I've heard of, but I don't know anything else about it. Uh, like I said, he wrote The Pianist, he wrote this, he wrote The Diving Bell and the Butterfly, which is actually a pretty good screenplay. So I don't know how that ha- I mean, also, the, the Dresser, The Dresser is a good script, The Pianist isn't bad. He did write Australia. Uh, he wrote Love in the Time of Cholera. He wrote Quartet, one of the many quartet movies that Maggie Smith has been in. She's been in two different unrelated movies named Quartet. That's weird, right? Mm-hmm. Anyway, Ronald Harwood. Interesting. Uh, uh, so he, he wins the Oscar for The Pianist, nominated for The Dresser and The Diving Bell and The Butterfly. Those seem to be the good scripts in his filmography of uh oh he wrote the other oh no wait he just wrote the the play quartet that the movie quartet is based on never mind uh yeah it doesn't seem to be like the the most uh uh it doesn't have the best batting average i would say at least of of memorable movies because there's a lot on there that i've never heard of in any context I don't, they could be good, but nobody talks about them. So who knows? Honestly, one of my weaknesses as a cinephile is that I am far too forgiving of movies that essentially just serve as foundations upon which an actor can give a great performance. I don't mind a movie that's just an acting showcase. Oh, yeah. So if I'm having problems with being Julia, which is very much that, then clearly it's not... There's something wrong here. Yeah, there's there's something wrong someone fucked up somewhere along the way. Uh, I don't think it's a poorly directed movie. I think uh, Istvan Sabo did a good job with the material he was given. I think it's an okay looking movie. I think the design aspects are actually pretty good. I like the costumes in here especially. Who did the costumes on this? Is it somebody i mean i i mean i know it's somebody but like is it one of those names that gets i don't know it's not on the wikipedia and i don't want to go to imdb to find it so 
someone will someone will find that information it's i guess bloomfield what has he worked on superman for the quest for peace oh boy really wow. a, a, re- a real mainstay of the costume designing industry <laughs> robin hood prince of thieves water world oh boy that's a that's <laughs> the quite the fan? that is quite the uh the quadruple feature you've got there um oh <laughs> yeah there's not really anyone else in this cast worth dwelling on for all that much like sean evans as tom is there he's also he's english playing american i just i why, why don't why don't you just cast a british actress and, Amer- and an american actor why why put your leads at such a remove when they're yeah. supposed to be romantically entwined for like 40 minutes in this movie why mm-hmm. why make them have to to overcome that barrier just to to sound believable and then have to deal with uh chemistry on top of maintaining an accent it's just and it's not like he's anybody really so so why not just go for an american actor like it's a midnight cowboy situation yeah but you could get like who would have been around this age at this point sarsgaard Peter Sarsgaard, he's he seems to be doing a lot of this type of role in 2003 and 2004. He he's, would have been too creepy looking though, and don't yeah, but the character is a bit creepy. The character is a bit weird. I feel like you could get Sarsgaard in this role, and he would do a lot more interesting things with it than Sean Evans does. But I do think that you need someone who's sort of a bland looking pretty boy, and I don't know if Sarsgaard gives off that energy he's too interesting looking that's to be believable as a boring boy toy that's fair uh juliet stevenson is given nothing to do other than Mm. cast like knowing glances at miriam margulies like i know what you are like she's the homophobic dog (laughs) Uh, and then miriam margulies has nothing to do in this movie other than be lesbian Bruce Greenwood has like three scenes and he's good. Bruce Greenwood is always very good. Like I wrote down so many of these people are typecast in roles that I've seen them do before. Like Annette Benning as a cougar that doesn't have her life together. Jeremy Irons, his whole thing that we talked about, about having weird relationships. Miriam Margulies is a lesbian. Michael Gambon is a ghost. Bruce Greenwood is in a cast that doesn't serve him. Lucy Punch typecast as a bad actress, which is kind of unfair to her because I think she is a good actress, but she gets cast so often as woman that can't act and thinks she can. (laughs) Although maybe that's just because she's so good at that in Hot Fuzz that I feel like it's a role she's played more often, but I don't know. She's good here. She's fun. She is, yes. But it's just the script doesn't serve her character at all and i I would have liked for this to be a more just sort of like by the books all about eve style story about the two of them like really forefront lucy punch and get rid of sean evans and i don't know i feel like you have a much more interesting movie there it's not at at that point it's no longer the uh somerset mom story i assume but like 
I don't know. It doesn't have to be based on that. It can be loosely adapted and just even more of an all about Eve ripoff. It would have been more interesting at least. And even diagnosing this movie's flaws script wise is so odd because simultaneously everything is happening and nothing is happening. There's too much, but also not enough. What's going on with her son, by the way? It feels like that scene is supposed to mean something. Like there's supposed to be a whole lot of subtext going on there where he shows up in, in, in her bedroom in the middle of the night and is like, hey, by the way, I just fucked a girl for the first time and I it it wasn't how I expected it. Uh <laughs> and then like is it is it supposed to be that he's gay or that he's in love with her or what like I don't think the script knows. I think the script is just sort of vaguely hand waving at him and being like, There's something wrong with that kid. You guys figure it out. Yes, I think so too. It's so Bizarre. And again, maybe the, the general point is just meant to be, oh, ha, ha, look at these crazy actors and they're so sexually liberated and isn't it funny that she feels comfortable talking to her son about something like this? Still, there's not enough going on in that scene for how many red flags are raised when he starts talking about his vague problems yeah and and it's like what is the script trying to tell us about this character is it trying to tell us that he couldn't get it up is it trying to tell us that he's secretly in love with tom is it trying to tell us that it that he's secretly in love with his mother is it trying to tell us anything truly i don't know it just sort of vaguely says there's some like i said there's something wrong with this kid. I'm not going to be bothered to lay it out any more clearly. You guys figure it out. You guys just sort of interpret my writing. Give me, give my script meaning because I, I don't have the answers. Uh, I am really coming down hard on this movie. Wow. Uh, I don't know. There's, and that's kind of everything I have written. I don't have a whole lot. Oh, I do like, there's a few moments where I think the script does have a few good jokes here and there when it remembers it wants to be a comedy. Uh, and even then, like, sometimes I don't know if they're jokes or if they're just sort of, like, winking at the audience. Hey, hey, get what I'm get what I'm going with here. But it's not really a joke beyond that. Like, when, the, when Jeremy Irons keeps talking about Tom relative to their son and, they're like, and he keeps saying, oh, it's okay. He's, he's only a little bit older than, than our kid uh, as a way to tell the audience, hey, isn't it fucked up that she's having sex with this guy? I don't know. Mm. They just sort of leave it at that. And yeah. I, it's a mess. It's a messy script. <laughs> it's a truly, it doesn't know what it wants to be to the point that like, I keep forgetting while watching it that it it is intended to be a comedy. Right. I don't even, I don't even think it has the best grasp on the genre it wants to play in it wants to have these big dramatic moments and these big sort of farcical moments and not it doesn't bother to keep the tone between either of them it really doesn't which is frustrating 
at a lot of points and again sorry it's not a painful experience watching this movie there are plenty yeah. of Oscar nominated films that I struggled to sit through this is not Otto Preminger's Exodus where I could barely sit still during it it's fine you can watch it with your mother and consume some hobnobs while you're sitting through the scenes that are meant to be comedic but there are much better versions of this sort of film. Yeah. Out there. There's a lot. There's a lot of all about Eve knockoffs that I'm sure you can find a better one that, that'll be more worth your time than this. But it, you could be doing worse. Uh, you could be doing worse within this best actress lineup, I will say. Uh, I, have, I have some thoughts on that mm-hmm. as well for later or for now i don't know is there anything else we want to say about the movie or do we want to move on to some oscar stuff i think we can move on okay the academy's favorite five this year are annette benning in being julia catalina sandino moreno in maria full of grace Imelda Staunton in Vera Drake. <laughs> Hilary Swank in Million Dollar Baby. Kate Winslet in Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Okay, so as far as precursor stuff, this has a, a modest showing. I mean, Benning shows up a lot, uh, and that's about it. At the SAG Awards, Annette Benning is nominated. It's the five Oscar nominees. Hilary Swank ends up winning. You're going to hear me say that a lot throughout this because those five were kind of the five for most of the season, more or less. Uh, Although at the Golden Globes, Annette Bening does win the Comedy Musical Best Actress Prize, which, again, I wrote that down. I kind of had to sit there and think, huh, yeah, I guess this was considered a comedy. Uh, Because I I just, I I don't, I don't know, what would you submit this movie as if you were the one that had to to run a campaign for it? I think it's a comedy. I think it's light enough and you get a lot of moments and people talk about this a lot with this specific brand of British drawing room humour where it feels comedy adjacent in a way where it's not funny haha it's oh look at how witty I am look at how smart I am this probably won't make you laugh but if you think about it enough, <laughs> you can see the thinking behind the joke and you'll notice how clever I am. Yeah, that's fair, I guess. I don't know if I agree with it. I don't think the movie is all that clever, but oh, I can I see know. the movie thinking. The movie <laughs> certainly thinks it's clever. Uh, yeah. Also nominated here, Kate Winslet in Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Again, not a comedy, uh, but just it has Jim Carrey, so I guess it counts. Uh, Emmy Rossum for Phantom of the Opera, Ashley Judd for De Lovely, and Renee Zellweger in Bridget Jones' The Edge of Reason. Uh, Critics' Choice, Annette Bening is nominated. It's the Oscar 5 with Uma Thurman and Kill Bill Volume 2. 
Uh, National Board of Review gives Annette Bening the Best Actress Prize for the year. Uh, New York Film Critics, she's a runner-up, uh, tied with Kate Winslet, runner-up to uh, Imelda Staunton and Vera Drake. At the Satellite Awards, Annette Bening wins the actress uh, or the Best Actress in a Comedy Musical, uh, also nominated there. Emmy Rossum again, Kate Winslet again, Natalie Portman in Garden State, Kerry Washington in Ray, and Jenna Malone in Saved. Uh, and uh, comedy musical supporting actor Jeremy Irons gets the nomination. Uh, winner is Thomas Hayden Church in Sideways, also nominated Mark Wahlberg in I Heart Huckabees, Patrick Wilson in The Phantom of the Opera, Peter Sarsgaard in Garden State, and Joseph Fiennes in The Merchant of Venice. And then you get a bunch of critics stuff. Uh, she's tied in second place at Boston Critics. She's nominated at Dallas-Fort Worth, London Critics, Washington, D.C. Critics. She wins uh, with the Southeastern Critics and the Hollywood Film Awards. Uh, then, weirdly, there were like two different Canadian awards groups that only nominated the movie for Best Supporting Actor for Bruce Greenwood, who I have to assume, based on that information alone, is Canadian, right? Because otherwise, oh, yeah. that's wild. Okay. Because yeah. he, he doesn't have a lot to do in this movie, as we said. He's good, he's but he's underserved. Okay. Okay. I assumed so, but I didn't. I didn't want to go out there giving him points where points were undue uh european film awards it's nominated for best director and best cinematography the goyas it's nominated for best european film uh the directors guild of canada it wins best editing and is nominated for best sound editing and at the international film music critics it is nominated for best uh drama score which it loses to the aviator so it was it had some sort of precursor attention for some things other than Annette Benning, but not much. And it, like, I can't imagine the whatever distributor had this movie was really disappointed or surprised when it ended up with just the one nomination. Yes, and I assume I know it's always sort of mean to phrase it this way. But I do feel like Annette Bening signed on to this project, assuming that she would get a nomination out of it. It is the sort of role that attends, tends to attract awards attention. And I don't think that Zabo or Sabo necessarily thought, oh, yes, this is my year. I'm taking down Clint Eastwood. Yeah, nor did uh, Jeremy Irons or Bruce Greenwood uh, think that they had much of a shot. Uh, who did the score on? Oh, it was um uh, Michael Dana who did the the music for Little Miss Sunshine. I did notice that it's not a bad score. We didn't talk about it much, but it's it's not intrusive in a way that sometimes they can be in this type of movie. I think it it it's a moderately well used score. Uh, so. I don't know. I guess that nomination is okay. Uh, what are the score nominees at the Oscars this year? I have oh, it pulled wasn't up. It bad year? Uh, Finding Neverland wins. <gasps> uh, the third Harry Potter movie, which I don't remember. I have no idea what pieces got introduced in that one versus in the previous two, but it's John Williams, so it's going to get in there. Thomas Newman's score for A Series of Unfortunate Events, which I remember being an okay score. Uh, uh, the Passion of the Christ. I haven't seen the movie. I can't speak to that. And James Newton Howard's score for The Village, which is pretty good. That's a, that's a good score. I, I will 
I'll stick up for that one. I'll also, in general, stick up for that movie. It's It definitely has its issues, as mm-hmm. with a lot of Shyamalan's later stuff. But I think it's a fun movie. I think it's okay. It's not bad. It's it's not his worst by any means. Uh, mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I don't know if I would substitute this score over the ones I've seen there. But it, it's not the most... It's not a lineup that gets you the most enthusiastic, I'll say. No, I need to see the... I've seen one of the Harry Potter movies, I think. You don't need to see them. Well, well, at this point in time. Yeah. Because what GK is getting up to with her (sighs) awful talk. Oh boy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, But yeah, I mean, the music in those movies... It's it's John Williams doing fantasy stuff. It's not going to be bad. It's not a bad score, but I I don't remember what about specifically the third movie and the score for that one makes it stand out against the other ones in that uh, franchise. Wait, isn't that the one where Kenneth Branagh... No, he's in the second one. ...really wanted to direct that one? Oh, did he? And then allegedly his ex-wife, Emma Thompson, steps in and says, hey, I'll appear in the movie <laughs> if you don't hire him to direct it. And so they got Alfonso Cuarón instead, and she does end up appearing in the film. So. I didn't know that story, but that's fantastic. Uh, and then he ended up getting to uh, wet his palate with the franchise stuff with uh, <laughs> Thor and Jack Reacher, whichever one he did, and uh, recruit. Yeah, and attempted franchise Aragon. Is that the one he did? No. What was it? Artemis Fowl. Artemis Fowl. Yeah. Straight to Disney Plus, Kenneth Branagh's Artemis Fowl. <laughs> and also the the Poirots, I guess, count as a franchise now, because yeah. there's two of those. Strange, strange directing career of Kenneth Branagh of Academy Award winner Kenneth Branagh now. <laughs> How do we get on that? The score. Um, do we want to talk about this best actress race before we get into yeah. some of these other ephemera here? Uh, so I have not yet seen Maria Full of Grace because that's a future episode for this show, but I've seen all the others here. And uh, where do we want to start off? I guess we could jump in with the winner who definitely dominated the conversation. She did, in a way that, like, I truly do wonder if, without Hilary Swank in the conversation this year, would Annette Bening have even been nominated? Because so much of this nomination to me, maybe it's just in retrospect, but so much of it feels like, hey, isn't it wild that we have Annette Bening and Hilary Swank in the conversation again, wouldn't it be funny if we nominated them both again and Hilary Swank won again? I would love to think of it that way, but it truly is one of those in retrospect things. Because you read articles from the time and read reviews of Being Julia, they were raving about this performance. I think that there were people who legitimately believed that she deserved this nomination based on merit alone and a big part of it was the overdue narrative that's fair yeah i don't think it was just 
the hilarity of Swank versus Benning 2.0. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't mean to reduce it down a hundred percent to that, but it certainly didn't hurt. It kept her in the conversation all season with like, hey, here's this this catchy thing going on that we can sort of build a narrative around. Uh to the point that like she was maybe second, if not a, a close third place. Almost like okay, that I that's maybe more what I'm getting at. I don't think the nomination is exclusively on that, but it puts eyes on her as a contender in a way that I don't think would have been seriously uh in the conversation for a win uh without that narrative. And otherwise, this is just sort of like a also ran uh, nomination that doesn't really have much of a shot. But I feel like she probably placed higher than Winslet and Sandina Moreno, largely off of the back of people talking her up as as overdue, specifically relative to Hillary Swank. If that makes sense. Yes, and another in retrospect thing is that you have a lot of Kate Winslet fans who insist that, oh, this should have been her year and actually she was in the conversation and I don't think that's true. And that Benning was almost certainly in second place. And again, I can't see her winning. It's sort of an odd case because, yes, if Swank isn't there then I don't re- really know how the race plays out. Maybe there would have been a different performance that year that sort of caught fire. But you look at the other nominees, someone like Catalina Sandino Moreno, you could argue that that was the most critically acclaimed performance of the bunch, but she didn't have enough clout in Hollywood as yeah. an actress to seriously contend for an award like this. And you need to be somewhat established in order to win so i assume kate winslet was first i would say i think imelda staunton had a lot of oh oh right a lot of uh uh she was the british contingents yes that movie did very well it got the director nominee uh over finding neverland i think was the one that, that missed yeah uh it's a screenplay nominee it's uh, just those three nominations, but like those are big. Mike Lee's movies tend to do very well with a certain crowd of like, uh, just he has his fans in the industry that will always uh, go to bat for his movies and specifically for the performances in them. Uh, and I feel like that may have helped. And it was also a, I don't know, they just, they just like that level of actress of British a middle-aged actress who comes in and quietly delivers some of the best acting you've ever seen. And I, I, f- I feel like that is enough of a counterbalance to uh, to Hilary Swank's very American performance that if you want to go the total opposite direction, why not go with an actual British actress instead of Annette Bening is, is what I was not so subtly trying to get at with that um but to talk about the actual oh sorry sorry and it's such a contrast in terms of the 
styles of acting that they're employing where Imelda Staunton is very realistic, very authentic. It's a very small scale performance. And Annette Benning is all showy, flashy technique and look at what I am giving you. And so uh, I assume that there are some actors who would be put off by that. Not that many, to be honest, though, based on the choices that the Academy tends to make. You have far more show-offy performances than quiet, restrained performances winning awards. That's true. That's a good point. Uh, to talk about the actual performance that won, though, we, I kind of veered us right into discussion of the race rather than about the actual performance. Part of that is because I very much don't like Million Dollar Baby at all. I think it's a bad movie. I think all of the performances in it are uh, underwhelming at best. And I think Swank is uh, not good. I don't I don't like this performance from her. I, I think it's a, it's a... I I don't know. I don't get any of the hype around this movie. It it baffles me to think about how this was able to become such an underdog player to the point that it wins best picture and director and actress and supporting actor. When I think like I at the very least understand the narrative behind Morgan Freeman has never won an Oscar. He's in this movie that we love right now. Uh, let's give it to him. But Hilary Swank already had an Oscar. Clint Eastwood already had an Oscar. The movie's not good. I I just, I don't get it. I don't understand what people see in this movie. And I certainly don't understand what people saw in it at the time. How do you feel about it? Oh, so in terms of its narrative at the time, I completely understand how this was able to win it's the ultimate sort of late-breaking film it came out at the perfect time seemingly to capitalize on all of the hype that surrounded it and it's one of those examples of this movie serving as a counterbalance against the film that was seen as the front runner at the time the aviator and it's one of those odd cases in which People were seemingly really dispassionate about The Aviator and desperate to find any other film that they could give awards to instead, which is just really funny to me in a way. And the big complaint about The Aviator was that, oh, it's soulless, it's heartless, it doesn't tug at your heartstrings. And then you have Million Dollar Baby, which is designed to make you weep at the end of it. They adore Clint Eastwood. I believe Barbara Streisand got up and said, oh, I'm so glad that I got to give this to you, my ex-boyfriend, during the presentation of the award. So clearly he's very well-liked in Hollywood. Not that Scorsese isn't, but you have to assume that that plays a role in it. And I believe when he received that Best Actor nomination, which was a bit of a surprise at the time, people went, oh, it's winning everything. Because clearly they love this movie. And looking back, it does seem a little bit funny that it did so well because it hasn't left that much of an impact. Having said that, 
neither has the aviator to be honest people don't talk about that movie that much it's not seen as one of scorsese's major works and to be honest i think it's more fitting that the departed ends up winning big two years later yeah, maybe I'm just saying this as someone that really does like The Aviator and also doesn't really like The Departed all that much. Uh, but I don't know. I just, I don't see it with this movie. I certainly don't see it with this performance from uh, from Hilary Swank. It's just sort of there for me in the sense that like when I'm looking back, like obviously Crash, bad movie. Uh <laughs> This, I just never think about this movie. I never, in any context, find myself reminiscing on Million Dollar Baby for any reason. I, it's it's just there. And I, I don't know. Sometimes that's that can be worse than being an outright offensive movie. Because at the very least, like we were talking about at the very beginning of this episode, with a movie like Crash... I have a reason to be passionately angry at it. I have a reason to to feel negative feelings about it. With Million Dollar Baby, it's just there. I I can't even work up the like like a a true argument against it as to why I find it so bad. I just don't like it. And that's really that's all I have for it. I I I don't know why. I just not a fan. And I know you always encounter this with the Academy Awards. They're always a bit out of touch. But in 2004 in particular, it really feels like they did not have their fingers on the pulse because you get movies as irrelevant as Ray and Finding Neverland making their way into the Best Picture lineup. And none of the cool, hip, technically innovative films get that many nominations in the above the nine categories and it really does feel like they were behind the times and you could say that that's of a piece with Crash winning the following year where you think oh god the elderly foddy doddies with questionable social politics are getting to decide everything and it's ruining the academy awards yeah and like the closest you get to like a genuine cool pick in the best picture race is sideways which is it's still a pretty cool pick and they're not even cool enough to nominate paul giamatti they no. they, they just they had to give it to clint eastwood and johnny depp and uh yeah i don't know i don't know they're this is not the most like you said not the most in touch uh uh year for the academy although the fact that kate winslet was even able to get a nomination for eternal sunshine the fact that that is a screenplay winner i mean i know there's reasons for that i know that that's at a point in kate winslet's career and in charlie kaufman's career where they are finally being like recognized more after after years of not getting the uh quite the level of attention that some people felt they deserved. And uh, I, I know you're not a big Winslet fan in general. I, how do you feel about this movie and this performance? I don't actually know your thoughts on this one. I am I'm a fan of the film. I do think that it's a really moving without being treacly 
or sentimental exploration of a relationship that just fundamentally doesn't work and it's really effectively sort of self-critical on Charlie Kaufman's part it's not a self-pitying piece of work having said that there are people who lose their minds over this Winslet performance and I don't really get it I can see any competent actress around that age putting this off and I think I would have liked the performance better in the hands of someone else and again this is me generally not being a fan of hers so clearly there's just something there that I don't get yeah this is a movie that like there was a time when you could have asked me my absolute favorite movie and I would have said this uh it's fallen a little bit for me but not all that much it's still a movie I like a lot it's just not my number one all-time favorite uh and even with all that like I I do still like Kate Winslet's performance very much but it is kind of baffling to me that she's the one that gets all of the attention when Jim Carrey is just like so much better in this yes. movie it's it's such a fantastic performance from him mm-hmm. that it was all boiled down to uh like that it was boiled down to Winslet and Kaufman for the entire awards season feels I don't know. I, I, I don't agree with that, I'll say. I think Carrie is the standout of from from everything going on with that movie that I don't know. I think she's good though. I think it's a good performance from her, but she's not in it all that much. As or at least not compared to him maybe that's just a relative thing because it's from his perspective but yeah i think she's good and that's really what i all all i have to say i think it's a good performance it's been a while since i've seen the movie also but it's a very good performance from her i think it's if i'm giving her a win out of her career out of her nominations that she's gotten this would probably be the one i would give it to her for but against some of this competition, I don't know. And by some of this competition, I mean Imelda Staunton. Because by process of elimination, it's the one left that I've seen that I haven't been so-so about at best. Uh, which, yeah, she's she's fantastic in, uh, in Vera Drake. It's, I mean, it's a Mike Lee movie. You're going to get a good performance out of your lead. That's not any anything groundbreaking to say. But yeah, she's really, it's a, it's a really effective piece of acting from her. Mm. Yes. It's an incredible performance on a technical level. I admit that I feel like Secrets and Vice is so brilliant that it's set this high watermark for me. And every single Mike Lee film that I watch I end up comparing it to Secrets and Lies and then feel slightly disappointed when it doesn't quite live up to it. And so I had that experience with Vera Drake and I do wonder if I had seen it before seeing Secrets and Lies, would I have a more positive view of it? Having said that, Staunton still deserves to win out of this lineup, especially. Yeah, yeah, she's really fantastic here again with selling the lighter and the darker moments of that character and her journey 
and making it feel entirely believable and making you really feel for this woman uh, without judging her in the way that the characters do, but the movie doesn't. Uh, 2012, just such a strange year. Yeah. The Academy Awards all over. Kind of boring. Here it's the end of the day where you go through and you think there were so many exciting, great mainstream movies that came out this year and you elected to allow (sighs) Finding Neverland, the blandest awards bait movie ever made that's possibly pedophilia apologia to take up that many spots. Seven nominations. Seven nominations for Finding Neverland. That's, that is uh, untenable. Mm. And just, yeah, the, the best actress race, there's a cool, there's a few cool picks in here. And there's a few that like, yeah, I know Hilary Swank was never not going to be nominated. I know Annette Benning was probably always going to get this nomination. But like, there's there's other people in the conversation. This is, Uma Thurman and Kill Bill Volume 2 could have gotten a nomination here. I would imagine, like, I don't know, do you think she was, who do you think was sixth place here? Ooh. I think that Uma probably had a good shot at making it in there because there was so much discourse surrounding that movie. It was the cool pick of that year, and I think it's telling that it doesn't make it in. But for anything, for any like neither of those neither of the Kill Bills get any nominations across the board. No. Maybe it was just that well, sorry, Tarantino's movies already had plenty of Oscar nominations, but it does feel like in the post Inglorious Bastards world, all of his movies seem to do really well, even the hateful age which received a fairly mixed reception, still manages to pull that Jennifer Jason Lee nomination, even with the negative publicity surrounding the fact that her character constantly gets hit in the movie, which I think would have hurt a film coming from a less respected auteur. So maybe that prevented it from making it in there. But it is odd that such a buzzed about movie didn't do better yeah yeah and being julia which vanished off the face of the earth did yeah i'm looking at some of these other awards uh uh groups this year what else oh you have uh zhang ziyi for house of flying daggers gets a bafta nomination you have uh who are the globe brahma oh Okay, you have, um, alongside Uma Thurman, uh, you also have Scarlett Johansson in a love song for Bobby Long. Uh, this had Oscar Buzz's own movie that basically doesn't exist. And uh, I forgot she got a, a Golden Globe nomination for this. Nicole Kidman in Birth, which yeah. also had its share of controversies and I can't imagine came anywhere close to an actual Oscar nomination, but would have been cooler certainly than some of these nominees yes and just looking back i think dream nominations that people would advocate for now you have rachel mcadams in meme girls which was never going to happen yeah and then 
even something like Julie Delpy in The Far Sunset. Again, yeah. was never going to be a possibility. But when you look back, those are the sort of performances that have endured, that sort of take up space in the cultural discourse surrounding movies from that era. And no one is really talking about Hilary Swank anymore. So. Yeah, and certainly nobody's talking about being Julia. Like, yes. like we said up top, the only cultural staying power that this movie has in any means is the fact that Annette Benning got this nomination. Without this nomination, I don't think anyone would remember this movie. Kind of similar to how, like, what was it? Film stars don't die in living in Liverpool, which was uh, designed to be something like that as well for, for Benning, as here's, she, again, she's playing uh, an older woman that is an actress and has some sort of affair with a younger man, I think. Mm. Is the, is the movie actually about her affair with her underage stepson, or is that just not no, no, addressed? No, 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 no. So she plays Gloria Graham, who, yes, molested her 13-year-old stepson. This is a movie about her having an affair with a younger man, but, but she not... is in his late 20s. She's okay. not a child, but okay. the movie was definitely controversial because it does attempt to sidestep questions about Gloria Graham's very problematic behavior. Okay. But like that movie was kind of, it's kind of in a similar boat where that movie doesn't end up having much of an awards presence for Annette Bening. And as a result, five years later, nobody remembers that movie. I only remember it because it attempted to have an awards run and then didn't. Uh, or like that's happened a lot with Annette Bening lately. Like she, she sure doesn't stop trying to get that fifth nomination. Fifth, fourth. How many is she at now? Ooh. Fifth. It would be her Ooh. fifth, right? Because it's the Grifters, and then she and didn't get nominated for Bugsy. No, she didn't. She missed out. Though. Wait, does she only have three? That can't be right. The Grifters, American Beauty, this. No, four, because there's The Kids Are All Right. The Kids Are All Right. Wow, I totally forgot about that one. Mm. Oh, man. And that's that's a performance I like. Uh, but, like, post-Kids post, post kids Are All Right, it's been, like, 20th Century Women, which was a thing for a while, and then she didn't get nominated. And Film Stars Don't Die in Liverpool. And The Report, where she played Diane Feinstein. And she just keeps going. And maybe it'll happen for her. I feel like it's not out of the realm of possibility that someday she'll get that nomination and finally win. But like, she is kind of a, one of those perpetual Oscar bridesmaids that uh, it's it's only heightened by the fact that two of those losses were to Hillary Swank. Yes, and it does, to me, it seems odd that she doesn't have one. I just think it yeah. sounds right and that's Benning, Oscar winner. And I am pleasantly surprised that her more recent attempts at securing a nomination have actually resulted in interesting projects getting off the ground. I know that not everyone loves 20th century women, but it doesn't feel as redundant as something like being Julia. It does feel like a project that she was passionate about she didn't just 
sign on the dotted line in the hopes of getting a nomination. And it's much better than what we see, and I love her, but Glenn Close doing more recently, where, God, how could you read the script for Hillbilly Elegy and think, yes, this is the sort of film that I'm passionate about. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I don't now I'm just looking at Annette Benning's uh filmography and do you remember the two movies that she's been in this year that are both they've both been released like they're not upcoming movies she has two different movies already on the slate for 2022 <laughs> She was in she was in that movie Jerry and Marge go large with her and Brian Cranston like trying to win the lottery or something Never uh, I and she's also in the aforementioned Kenneth Branagh's Death on the Nile. Right, God, I've seen that, and I forgot that she was in it. Yeah, she has two things upcoming that seem interesting or and or potentially awardsy. There's a, a movie, uh, she's doing a biopic about, uh, oh, what's her, uh, Diana Nyad, who was a long-distance swimmer. Uh, she swam from the Bahamas to Florida in 1979. Uh, I'm just looking at her Wikipedia, but that seems like it could be something. Jodie Foster is also in that movie, uh, as is Risa Fons, and those are the only three people in this cast that have been announced so far. Uh, but that appears to be in pre-production. And then she's also in a movie uh, called Pool Man, which is a mystery comedy film uh, Chris Pine's directorial debut uh, and it, it he appears to be according to this very uh, short premise on Wikipedia he's Annette Benning's pool boy that uncovers a water heist uh, in the same vein as Chinatown uh, also starring so Chris Pine is also in Annette Benning, uh, Danny DeVito Ariana DeBose, Jennifer Jason Lee and Dewanda Wise. So that could be something. That sounds like it could be fun. I I I don't know. Filming began in June of this year. It uh I don't know. That could be something. Uh certainly those two seem like more uh there, there's more potential behind Annette Benning having something to do in that versus Death on the Nile or say Captain Marvel. Yes, and I, I do love the fact that she is leaning into her milfiness. Yeah. Uh, she, has, she has a pool boy. She's a sexy older woman in a lot of these movies. And it's I mean, fun. that's like the first half of this movie we were talking about is it's just like, here's 40 minutes of a cougar romance and then it turns into something else less interesting. <laughs> but like, there's even a little bit of that in 20th Century Women with her and Billy Crudup, I, I, if I'm remembering correctly. Uh, yeah, obviously film stars don't die in Liverpool, as we mentioned, has some <laughs> elements of that. Uh, I don't know. She, I mean, we, we talked about how Jeremy Irons is always in these relationship movies that go wrong, but like she has an affair in American Beauty. She gets cheated on and the kids are all right. She, I, I, I don't know. It feels like she also has just as many relationships gone wrong movies. Maybe not quite as poorly as some of the ones in in Jeremy Irons's oeuvre, but like 
I don't know, she's in the women remake. That's all about that kind of thing. Oh, and she looks so strange on that movie's poster. It does not look like Annette Bening at all. I don't know what that face, that Photoshop artist did. Yeah. Also, uh, just looking through her filmography, worth noting that in the same year as uh, being Julia, uh, she has the cameo as herself in like one scene of The Sopranos where Tony Soprano has a dream that he's at dinner with Annette Bening. Okay. Yeah. It's that movie has, or that show has a, when you look at the people that cameoed in that show as themselves, it's like Annette Benning and Ben Kingsley and Lauren Bacall all show up in that show for like an episode as themselves. Very strange, but uh, it's fun. We are really just sort of going all over the place with this one. We're losing at the moment. Yes, we are. But uh, there's, there's been some. I, I hope some interesting stuff that we've talked about. Maybe not. Maybe this is all unsalvageable and we'll have to record the whole thing over again. I doubt it, though. Is there anything else we want to mention Oscar-wise? Uh, craft categories, maybe? Costumes? What are the costume nominees here? Oh, so, sorry, again, unrelated to oh. being Julia, but... Big fan of Laurelini's nomination for Kinsey. That's the one thing they got right in 2004. Other than that, being Julia-wise, I'm sort of surprised that it's got nothing in the costume category or in best makeup. I'm not saying that it necessarily deserved it, but usually when it's a period piece about actors living glamorous lives you automatically get a nomination. Yeah, uh, for example, uh, see Mrs. Henderson Presents, a a movie that it feels very much like I should be able to talk about, and yet uh, got, I think, multiple other nominations. But yeah, this year, there's some, like, uh, the Aviator wins art direction and costume design. Uh, You have crossover with, Finding Neverland gets nominated in both of those, as does uh, a series of unfortunate events. Art direction, you also have The Phantom of the Opera and a very long engagement. And costume design, you have Ray and Troy. Uh, So, I don't know. I mean, those are, for the most part, period pieces uh, in one way or another. And then also a series of unfortunate events, which is just sort of its own thing, artistically. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. I guess this is the one time they didn't go for the thir- like 1930s London everyone's all fancy dress. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yes, and I am extremely happy that Troy, which I was forced to watch in a high school classical studies class didn't succeed in picking up lots of nominations because it's crap and it's a terrible adaptation of its source material and the Iliad I thought it was going to be boring no it's fun and that movie seem boring so how dare they disrespect Homer like that I don't know what else is there to talk about at all? Anything? 
I don't think so. I think yeah, exhausted all of the discussion points that you could possibly touch on when talking about being Julia. Yeah, yeah, we we uh, I think we're done here. I think we can move on to our final segment here. So, uh, in uh, in your fantasy world, what nominations would you have given being Julia? Nothing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I, 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 I am with you there. This is a, it's a, maybe costume design. I think there's some nice dresses in here. There's some, some nice suits. Jeremy Irons looks good in a suit. Uh, but that's, that's really the extent of what I would even consider. Again, I don't think Benning's bad, but it is not anything especially noteworthy from her. No, it's not a top-tier Benning performance. Yeah, it, it, it's also not a bottom-tier Benning performance. It's like perfectly right down the middle, serviceable. Mm. Oh, sorry, one last question. Have you yes. seen In Dreams? I have not. I don't know if I know which one that is. Watch it. So... It's a thriller where she gets menaced by a knife-wielding Robert Downey Jr. in the middle of his drug addict phase in the 90s and directed by the man who made The Crying Game. Oh, it's it's a Neil Jordan movie. But it has a cool poster and she's good in it. Good to know. I uh, I will have to check that one out. Looking at the Wikipedia, there's a man in that movie whose name is Ken Cheeseman. <laughs> I, I think I think that's a good place to end this episode on Ken Cheeseman. Uh, thank you for coming on. I had a, lo- a lot of fun talking about this movie with you. Oh, I had a great time. This was a very informative discussion for me. Oh, I thought you were going to say more. Um, oh, sorry. <laughs> no, you're fine. I just... Uh, I left you in the lodge. Uh, yeah, uh, where can people find you and your stuff? Oh, so I'm on Twitter at Zeta underscore short. And I also host a podcast that Gordon has appeared on several times. And we will be discussing ice castles in the near future so if you want some of that late 70s blind goodness <laughs> ice skaters you, you, you gotta you gotta mention the ice skating ice skating goodness then please check the podcast out on anchor and other mainstream free podcast platforming services What's it called? You didn't mention the name of the podcast. Oh, it's called the 300 Passions Podcast. I apologize. I got derailed by Robbie Benson and his dreamy eyes. Yeah, uh, go check that out. It's a, it's a good show. I've been on there a few times. It's We have about as much fun on that show as we do on this show. It's a, it's a good time. It's, it's a fun show. And uh, the other episodes that I'm not on, also worth checking out. It's a good show in general. Zeta's a very good host. Uh, you can find this show on Twitter and Letterboxd at Lone Acting Noms and on Instagram at The Lone Acting Nominees. That'll be it for this episode. Thank you for listening. <laughs>